Jeju Island. This is the Korea File, a weekly podcast about music, film, politics, and society from all around the peninsula. I'm Andre Goulet. On this episode, Michael Breen's been covering North and South Korea for more than 30 years for The Guardian, The Korea Times, and more. He's also the author of The Koreans, Who They Are, What They Want, and Where Their Future Lies, and the CEO of Insight Communications Consultants. This is the second of two episodes discussing the origins of the Korean War, dictatorship and democracy in the ROK, and the future unification of the Koreas. You came in 82. What was it like for you living here in, uh, I don't know, like the 80s, early 90s, mm. before proper de- democratization? Yeah. Uh, how did it affect your perspective? Um, it, um, uh, well, w- when I came here, Korea was a dictatorship. Um, but, um, you know, dictatorship is not as easy to recognize or feel as you might think, you know. I mean, you go to somewhere like North Korea, it's pretty apparent. Um, even if you don't see people jackbooting down the streets, you can feel um, people don't behave normally, you know. And that's a consequence of fear. But you didn't have that here. I mean, the Koreans were like they are now very noisy, very lively, um, very energetic, said what they thought and stuff like that. And so when they themselves, you know, even in dictatorship, by the way, the South Korean officials and politicians would say, we are a liberal democracy, you know. And because <laughs> uh, the people want it. And, the, and um, visitors and Americans, and particularly, I mean, almost everyone was an American then. Um, visitors, business people, the US military, um, some academics and people like that um, who knew Korea sort of agreed with them. It's like, um, well, you know, it's, it's kind of young, there's growing pains, but you know. Um, you only really came across it if you directly dealt with politics, and particularly the North Korea issue. Um, and um, so as a journalist, I was. So I could see it, you know. Um, the, like we never, I never interviewed people on the phone, because you thought, okay, the phone's a bust. You meet people in coffee shops. And then you see people and sort of going like this, trying to, and you think, okay, who's who in the people? that sort of stuff um, and um, you uh, like Kate like I remember once uh, there was only about half a dozen we- actual westerners with the foreign press at that time and I remember once we went to the trial of a, a young student who'd been arrested for giving a, a, a press release to the foreign press that was criticizing the government and we, we deliberately went as white people to show our faces Sometimes you're off, um, and things like that. But I can kind of forgive a lot of people. I remember once a, a military, a U.S. military guy who was a civilian with the U.S. military, once sort of got quite annoyed with me. themselves and the foreign uh, foreigners by the way were treated as first class citizens so 
so we were doubly sort of shielded from it really. Um, but it was, you know, Chunduan uh, was a military dictator and um, the sad thing about it was that dictatorship had been much better for the country. A lot of officials supported this dictatorial. I, I knew a guy who um, had been a, a go um, government official, economic official, who said, yeah, and this was after democracy, he said, you know, yeah, you know, democracy's great and all that. He said, but you know, at the time, when Park Chung-hee drove his tanks in, I and a lot of my colleagues thought, oh God, because we used to spend all of our time at the National Assembly with idiots like Kim Dae-jung and Kim Yong-san showing off, wasting our time, criticizing everything we did, and you had to prepare for all this. So you spend all your time preparing for this, you're not actually doing your job. I think he was a budget official or something. And he said, so when the, when the idea of democracy in those days was just riotous chaos. And so when the military came in and got everybody in you know, focus, it was, we appreciate, so it, you see it's much greyer than, now it's sort of black and white, but at the time it was kind of grey. Um, what do you think, uh, briefly, about some of the trends towards regressive policies, like uh, with the Supreme Court's recent decision mm -hmm. on the United Progressive Party, which was part right. of the disbanded, uh, was a far left, pro North Korea party, uh, but you know, in a democracy, most democracies would allow for that. Korea mm. apparently doesn't. Were you surprised? Yeah, uh, and very disappointed. I mean, I think uh, I think that marks a step back. Uh, I mean, I, I do think Korea is on a path of democratization that no one can stop, and so in the grand scheme of things, this is a temporary setback, and it's because you've got. Uh, leaders in the last 10 years you've had political leaders who came to maturity in the 70s where and um, they're not really Democrats I mean they're not sort of fascist or anything but um, the idea of civil rights to them is a bit of a luxury and the threat of North Korea overrides civil rights what they don't realize they or what they conceptually these sort of people don't believe that civil rights are a source of strength, um, that freedom is what people will fight for. Um, so they think it has to be restricted. So they're definitely winding the clock back. I, I thought that, and, and the other thing was that the, the um, I don't even consider that party, I, I mean, I agree with what you said. I, I think the mark of South Korean democracy will be when they're allowed to have a pro-North Korean party voice in their assembly that actually above the surface even a chapter of the North Korean Workers Party if you like um, can be be here and if they're confident and solid enough to allow that and say okay you know they'll be idiots because no one will follow that but at least they're allowed to speak I don't even think that party was pro North Korean I think it was all fabricated really. so much said yeah, yeah. Um, in a way, it's all kind of incidental because this is an unfinished country in a lot of ways. And I want to move to talking mm. about unification. Mm. So uh, is unification something that is on the social radar right now? No. It's uh, not only is it not on the social radar, I mean, it's deliberately off the social radar. I mean, the people, I mean, the, the president is um, 
she said last year was it a bonanza or something unification will be a bonanza and suddenly they suddenly they're starting to free up money and um, I'm not particularly impressed by this because uh, I think it's rather foolish actually in a sense because I think it misleads people um, what are the attitudes of the current administration towards unification well I think I think um, if you Drill down deep enough. Um, well, how to? They're not. They're not delusory. They they know that um, by opening up a bit to North Korea, it's not going to lead to unification. Um, but I think they've um, somewhere. I, I haven't followed it really, but uh, somewhere they've sort of realised that uh, being harsh and closing everything off also doesn't solve anything. Um, but I think unification itself is um, scares the Koreans, and they just want to put, postpone it as long as not on my watch type of thing. And this is, I mean, this is what you spoke about the British Council um, in a mm-hmm. talk you gave there. Oh yeah, Council. why aren't they uh, unified? Yeah. So I, I want to get to that, but um, emotional, social, scholarly, and economic readiness for unification are any of those aspects of society. No, I mean, they're not. One thing in this country is there's no long term planning. The only exception that I'm aware of is there is a 10 year land use plan. Like every 10 years, um, there's a very big plan for how land, I don't know how detailed it goes. But, um, and that's because uh, a single presidential term of five years, um, anything that a president starts, they want to complete within their term. And if it goes beyond their term, like Emil Bat tried to make the country a green champion, of course the next president comes in, doesn't care about that. Right. You know, so there is no long-term planning. There is no plan for unification. There are scholars who've looked at various aspects of it, um, whether what they think will matter if and when the time comes. Um, you know, there's no sort of blueprint someone was going to blow the dust off later. Well, so there's a department of unification in the, in the government. What yes. do they do all day? Um, they do stuff. I mean, they research stuff. I'm sure they know a lot about okay. North Korea. But there's no um, plan in place that can get sort of updated as events change but of the sort where, you know, our long-term objective here is unification with the minimum disruption and here's our strategy to achieve that if this happens we'll do this here are the triggers if this happens we'll do this this is there's no broad plan um you know it's it's a huge obstacle because this is a this is something that should go beyond the interests of a president this is a a national priority you know it is it's the Um, biggest priority so why is it completely why is it not spoken about why is it it's studied it's researched but why is nothing applied and why is it not something that people, you know, people, society, government are passionate about attacking? Um, I think it's because, um, uh, you know, when the Germanys unified, the Koreans, Korean government sent a load of scholars to uh, Germany to study very quickly after, you know, in the year afterwards to study 
the details. And when they came back, and this was like 91 or something, when they came back, the administration at the time was completely gobsmacked by... His, suddenly, unification became a reality. Before that, it was a fantasy. Oh, yeah, we want unification. Unification on both sides was code word for um, we want to regain the rebel-held half, mm. you know. Um, and uh, the reality of unification um, hit the South Koreans so hard that um, I mean, I had a very odd, you know, I, did, I, I had a very odd experience back then. I was very friendly with a former deputy foreign minister. What? No, sorry, he was a he was a uh, assistant foreign minister at the time, and he became the first ambassador to China. See? And I was very friendly with him. And we had a cup of coffee in the Plaza Hotel coffee shop, 1992, sometime, and uh, we were talking about this. Now, I'd been in Korea like 10 years by then, so unification was, it was like the aspiration. You know, any visitor coming to Korea, within a few minutes, they'd be talking about unification again. I was going to North Korea, and I went to talk to him before I went. He said, um, off the record, we don't want it. And I said, I'm sorry, I don't know what you mean. He said, we don't want it. I said, you don't want what? And he said, and he said I'm actually from Busan. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we, the South Korean government, do not want unification. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, and he said, okay, now on the record, uh, of course we Koreans, we want unification, uh, but we would like to have it in a step-by-step -step gradual process. And he goes, off the record, preferably when we're all fucking dead. <laughs> you know, and he, he said, do I make myself clear? And I thought, wow, that's the first I'd ever heard of it. And um, within, I'd say, a year, that became, it was brilliant really, because it became the common sentiment. Mm. Somehow they, the government didn't panic and suddenly announced, oh, we're going to. Um, they slipped out the, oh, well, our studies show that unification would cost 50 trillion won a year. For, you know, everything. And they kind of let the press and people sort of figure, like, bloody hell. Mm. And then they all come and take our jobs. And, you know. So, um, did, did, this, did this attitude um, evolve, change or evolve with um, the Kim Dae-jung and Roe yeah, uh, yeah. administrations? Yeah. The Sunshine Policy, uh, that's something else altogether, right? Sunshine, yeah. That, that, but what didn't change was the, um, the what they call gradualism, mm -hmm. desire for gradualism. Mm -hmm. Nobody, maybe a few sort of irresponsible people but no one no one sort of advocates forcing North Korea to collapse kind of thing the idea in fact Kim Dae-jung said I remember talking to him about this and he said um, uh, it would be much better if Kim Il-sung was still alive this is when he was alive um, you know if under his watch we had unification it'd be all managed you know um, so um, that that's so to answer your question about what people think about it that that's one track. The other track is when you look at how people were educated in about North Korea, the early years of dictatorship, um, and, and people when they remembered the war can kind of accept this sort of stuff. The, the 
propaganda was outlandish. They even actually taught that North Korean kids, they taught them that North Koreans had horns on their heads, you know. And there was all this sort of propaganda against them. And, uh, you know, you ask a kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? Oh, I want to fight for unification. You know, I remember once going to a kindergarten, and I can't remember why I went there, but it was as a journalist, and um, saying to the kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? And and the teacher said, me. And he said, oh, we want to fight for unification. You know, it was like a real <laughs> little dictatorship sort of thing. Um, and then... And in the late 80s, early 90s, those classes at school, which were compul- had been compulsory, they had so- actually, sort of through the 80s, they kind of shifted over to ethics. It was national ethics, anyway, was the name of the class. Mm-hmm. From anti-communism, it kind of shifted over to sort of Confucian manners and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Then it just got dropped. So you then, the reaction against that sort of education was that people didn't believe the propaganda against North Korea. And then, as restrictions on reporting about North Korea were lifted, it didn't take long for people to realise actually that propaganda was pretty spot on. It wasn't that. It, it was a tool of dictatorship, so it was abused. But the actual picture they were portraying of North Korea wasn't that different from what it is. And so then you've got a sort of a, a cynicism. It's like, oh, I don't give a shit. And, and because there's no change, people just get weary of it. Mm-hmm. So right. you're at that sort of weary... Let's avoid the whole thing. A combination of the scary, the being scared about the, the real prospect and just it's not high on anybody's agenda. Yeah. In, in your talk at the British Council, you spoke to the strengths, maybe the hidden strengths that South Korea has or doesn't recognize uh, in itself. I think um, the, the strengths I see of Korea, um, and perhaps when I said they were hidden, is I don't think... Um, the Koreans are fully confident of themselves yet and, and fully aware of, of what they're like. And you'll hear they say, oh yeah, we are unique. But there's a kind of an insecurity when you talk like that. Um, the, the hidden strengths, I think, there's, um, you know, life here is incredible. The downside of it is incredibly intense and it's like a pressure cooker, this country. But you know, they're very, very determined people and they're determined that they're never going to go back. So this country's going to keep going, keep growing. It's not going to be in Argentina. It's not going to be even... Uh, there's fears now it's going to... The next couple of decades will be like Japan. You know, the population's getting old and stuff. But the Koreans, the Koreans won't allow that. I think they have hidden reserves of energy and aspiration um, that will surprise the world or are surprising the world already I think um, that's what I meant I think they'll come up with something I mean you look at how long have you been here? Was it about six years six years you can't before it's 2000 well, I was here first in 2006 six okay so um, I'm not sure actually I was going to go back uh, another six years but let's say from the in this in this century um if somebody had said, you know, Korea would be the most wired country in the world and all of that, and, uh, you know, Argentinian girls will be uh, learning the lyrics of K-pop songs and stuff like that, I think they were nuts. Um, but and in a similar way, I think the Koreans are going to surprise us. Like 15 years from now, there's going to be things coming out of this country that are going to take us by surprise. Could it be um, a prediction mm-hmm. uh, about unification? 
Um, you know, I'd rather not. The last time I did it was in 1990, and I bet it would be 1994. And um, I'll tell you what I will. I'll tell you what I will would like to predict. Um, now, first of all, a caveat: barring the unexpected event, and unification is likely to be unexpected in some way. It could be unexpected and sudden. So, barring that. Everybody involved wants it to be a contained and gradual process. And unless there's uh, some kind of civil war or revolt in North Korea, <coughs> I suspect it'll be like that. I suspect, I think, I would, let me predict <coughs> that um, the, the moment that will thrill us is going to be the moment that we're allowed to travel freely. You know, you and I could say, you know, let's have dinner in Pyongyang tonight. You know, when there's free movement, when your cousin from um, Heju can kind of come over for the weekend to see you in Incheon or something. Um, <coughs> the final unification arrangement will come, and you know, it'll excite the world, but I think it, it'll come at a time when in this part of the world, national boundaries are beginning to be that important, ironically. You know, a bit like Europe now. I mean, let's say Belgium and Holland united as one country. So, <laughs> who cares? It, it, you know, it's going <coughs> to... It'll be headlines for a while, but it won't be very significant. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if the Korean unification um, simply frees up travel across the border into China and down here um, and... By the time it comes, the North Koreans would have built up their economy and society anyway to, to a certain level. But another prediction I would make is I think the generation that knew division will not see unification. I don't think they'll see it. Well, certainly on that note, Michael Green is the CEO of Insight Communications Consultants and the author of The Koreans. Uh, thank you so much for speaking with the Korea Files. Pleasure. That's the Korea file for this week. Special thanks to Michael Green. Tune in next week for my interview with KBS Radio's Chance Dorland. You can find the Korea file on iTunes, Facebook, or at Spreaker.com. And if you like this show, recommend it. From Saki Village on Jeju Island, I'm Andre Kuwait.